proud to partner with UCLA's Public Mental Health Partnership. Uh, my name is Jen Wiseman. I'm a clinical trainer and research associate at the Center for Practice Transformation at the University of Minnesota. Um, and I'll be co-training today with my colleague, Michael. Um, my, uh, let's see, so at the center, I um, focus in on curriculum development um, for both online and in-person trainings and a hybrid mix of the two. And I also um, focus on several different research projects at the center um, and have some clinical background, worked in a clinical setting and a community-based care with people with co-occurring substance use and serious mental illness. So it's my hope that um, my clinical experience informs the trainings that we provide today and the research that we do at the center. So Michael, I'll leave it to you. Thanks, Jen. Hi, everybody. I'm Michael Van Wert. Um, I'm also a clinical trainer and research associate at the Center for Practice Transformation. Um, and I also work on uh, curriculum and training development. Um, and uh, I am a clinical social worker um, by training, have practiced in the field um, for a bunch of years, um, working primarily with um, adults living with um, severe mental health uh, challenges um, and have loved it in group therapy, individual therapy. Um, and I'm really excited uh, to be here with you all today. Cool. So um, today we're here to learn about behavioral rehearsal. Um, and so what we'll do today is really um, just start by getting a feel of uh, what behavioral rehearsal is. We'll talk about some research behind it. Um, we'll talk about the steps of behavioral rehearsal, and then we'll take a bit of a break. Um, probably within like the first hour in, we'll take about a 15 minute break. Um, and, um, and then we'll come back and we'll deep um, dive further into the steps of behavioral rehearsal. And then Michael and I are gonna model um, some, maybe some situations that you might encounter in a clinical setting, and then leave a bunch of space for um, some FAQs and just um, some commentary about um, our, our modeling the, um, the role play. So, um, so that's what today is gonna look like. And again, we encourage you to put any commentary or questions that you might have in the chat. We'll keep an eye on that as we go. And as time allows, we'll um, make sure to integrate that into um, what we have going on here today. So um, let's see, our goals, our objectives for you today or takeaways that we want you to have from the session is to provide a reason for using behavioral skills in practice, um, to articulate the importance of connecting skills rehearsal to a person's goals, however big or small they might be, and to uh, list the steps of behavioral rehearsal, and also to be able to think about and tailor a behavioral rehearsal to a person's situation that you might be working with. So those are what we'll hope, uh, we hope you take away from today. And we'll move on. So when we talk about, um, when we talk about any kind of skills training or any, you know, anything that we're working with, um, with our clients, we're, we're working with the assumption that there are two truths to hold, right? So on one hand, people are doing the best that they can to function and cope uh, with, um, in their life, given their circumstances. So given their experience, their resources and their circumstances, they're doing the best that they can. And at the same time, they can often benefit or be helped by um, skills, training, or learning a new skill, right? So they're doing the best they can, and often they can benefit from learning a new skill. So moving on to uh, where does behavioral rehearsal come from? So when we talk about behavioral rehearsal, it really stems from the cognitive behavioral model. 
um, which many of you I'm, uh, um, are familiar with. So behavior rehearsal stems from the cognitive behavioral model, which emphasizes the connection between thoughts, feelings, and emotions. So they are all connected. Um, typically as practitioners, we use these skills with people to either change their thoughts or behaviors. So we're really focusing on those thoughts and behaviors to positively affect the other two. So, um, you know, hopefully with the end result of our clients feeling a little bit better and more effective in their, in their lives. So behavioral rehearsal really kind of focuses in on that behavioral piece to hopefully influence all three. Um, when we talk about behavior rehearsal or skills training, um, it really is a technique used in behavior or cognitive behavioral th uh, therapy for modifying or enhancing a person's skills. It involves practicing behavior responses uh, within a situation. So we're really actively practicing these situations with our clients in session or in the therapeutic environment with the aim to hopefully reduce their anxiety and help them feel more comfortable with, with the skill and then hopefully more, you know, comfortable enough to generalize it to real life or adapt it to what it looks like in their, in their real life situations. So again, it can be practiced. We practice it a lot. It's action-based. Um, it's in a clinical setting for adaptations to a person's real life. So when do we use it? Um, we, we, we know that it's effective in treating a wide range of disorders. So when we look at serious mental illness like um, schizophreniform, schizophrenia, bipolar disorders, major depressive disorders, anxiety disorders, substance use disorders. It's really appropriate for anyone. Um, there's a lot of research that supports its efficacy also in a business setting and with kids and with people who struggle with ADHD, those sorts of things as well. Um, we look at practicing behavioral rehearsal with a person um, who is in preparation or action stages of change. So for those of you who are familiar with the trans theoretical model or um, the change model, people who are preparing to make change are in actively in stages of change regarding a specific behavior. This is when we would use behavioral rehearsal. We're not going to want to introduce it to someone who's like, no, I'm good. You know, I don't need to make any changes in my life. I, I feel like I'm good where I'm at. We're not going to introduce, well, maybe the scale would be good for you because that potentially could um, harm the therapeutic relationship. So it uh, is an effective tool um, to use for people who are having uh, cognitive difficulties. So we think about people who um, might be, they might have a traumatic brain injury. Um, they might have a, de a developmental disorder. They might be having some cognitive difficulties due to really serious um, mental health symptoms or um, maybe withdrawal from substances. So this behavioral tool can be really nice, a nice way to, to do um, some work with people who aren't really at a place where they, they um, are thinking about their thinking, right? Um, so it's a suggested skill that, um, to use in topics such as, as we mentioned, life skills. So like brushing your teeth or making your bed or getting up on time um, or uh, as coping skills. So for people who, um, might want to work on relaxation training, some deep breathing, or um, body scans, those sorts of things are coping skills. And then uh, social skills as well. So anything interactive with other people, we think about things like uh, drug refusal, um, interviewing for a job. Um, there's lots of different exa examples for interactive social skills, and we'll um, demonstrate each of those areas later on today as we move forward in tra training. 
Okay, so research. Um, it supports, there's a large, large body of research that supports behavioral skills for various diagnoses, as mentioned. Um, social skills are included in the 121 practices listed in SAMHSA's registry of evidence-based programs and practices. Um, and skills training in general, we know, is an effective tool in treating co-occurring serious mental illness and substance use disorders. Great. Um, thanks, Jen. Yeah. So um, we want to ask ourselves the question, you know, where can skills training be helpful, right? So Jen just laid out what it is and um, the support for it, the empirical support for it. Um, but let's actually bring this to life a little bit. And maybe we can answer this question um, by looking at an example um, with a client. So this is a hypothetical client, um, although this person may sound very familiar um, to all of you in, in the work that you do. So let's imagine that um, you're working with an individual, um, they come to you for help, and you're getting to know them, you're doing your um, assessment, you're um, learning about their history or learning about what's bringing them to you. And through that conversation, um, you know, you're, you're listening to what are the things that are bothering them? And they might say a few different things. So they might say something like, um, you know, I'm feeling really incredibly incapacitating um, anxiety, right? So I, I wake up in the morning and I feel anxious. I go to bed and I feel anxious. I'm anxious all day long. Um, it's just always there, right? So um, absolutely terrifying anxiety. Um, or they might say something like, I sweat all the time. My heart races. I've got tension all throughout my shoulders, um, in my chest in my forehead, in my face, you know, it's everywhere. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm in public places and my, my shirt is completely drenched and it's so, so embarrassing. Um, you know, they're, they're very much just focusing on uh, these body symptoms that, that might come up, which very well might be associated with the um, anxiety. They might also say, um, you know, I'm, I'm often on the bus going to work and, um, I'm, you know, I get on the bus and I sit down and I'm riding to, um, you know, my stop, which is eight or so stops away. And more often than not, I have to hop off the bus at stop three, which is way before my job because I'm sweating. I'm anxious. I can't handle it. Um, maybe it gotten into altercations with folks on the bus. Um, I've gotten into at least a fight before where, um, you know, someone was coming up in my space, you know, I was sitting there quietly, a person comes and sits down right next to me, and I am just feeling completely not comfortable with this, right? And um, so there's been a situation where, you know, that person was all up in my space, and I had to push them away, and that didn't go well. And of course, the police were called, and all hell broke loose, right? So they might they might sort of frame that as one of the issues that they're coming to you for. Um, they might also focus on thoughts. So they might say to you, um, you know, I'm just constantly thinking about like people being in my space, right? Like I'm just sitting there and I'm thinking like, this is too close, I'm unsafe, I'm unsafe. So they might tell you a little bit about what types of thoughts they're having while all this might be going on, right? So they, they may frame it in a bunch of different ways. Um, emotions, body sensations, behaviors, and thoughts. Um, so you're already starting to kind of think about where skills might come in as you're, you're listening for these pieces. Um, let's say you continue to, to talk with this person and you're getting to know them a little further. And, um, you know, they, they tell you a little bit more about the situations 
where these um, experiences come up, right? So maybe that first one that they told you about, uh, maybe it happened last week and, you know, um, you say, well, when, when do these tend to come up? And they say, well, when I'm on a bus, when I'm, when I'm on a crowded bus. Um, and maybe as you get to talking more, um, they start to tell you, well, it's not just the bus. Um, it might also be when I go to my kid's baseball game, right? And there's like 40 people there. Uh, maybe it happens when I'm in a big meeting anywhere. Um, maybe it's at work or maybe when I'm at the grocery store and there are over a hundred people in the grocery store and I'm just starting to feel all those sensations, all those emotions, all those behaviors. It's all just wrapped up, right? And it just feels terrible. It feels like distress to me. So you're learning a little bit more about those situations that lead to those reactions, right? Which is helpful as a as a helper. Um, and as you're kind of listening to that, you're starting to also understand how this person maybe thinks about the world, right? And so maybe you start to understand, whoops, sorry, that went away. Um, maybe you understand something a little bit more deeply rooted about how they view the world and themselves and maybe others. So they have all these different situations that they've just told you about. And as you get to know them, you know, you start to, to sort of understand that maybe they think the world is an unsafe place in a bigger sense and sort of a very, very kind of deep seated way. You know, this person doesn't trust other people, maybe. Um, and maybe they have some assumptions also that, that they're sort of either overtly telling you or maybe not overtly, right? Maybe they're saying um, public places will get me hurt, right? Um, so they've given you all these situations where they have all these symptoms. Um, or on the flip side, if I avoid public places, if I don't stay in public places for too long, then I'll stay safe, right? So you're, you're starting to understand almost the, the different um, often unsaid or unspoken rules that this person uses to live, right? Um, you keep getting to know them. And they tell you a little bit about their early life experience, right? They tell you a little bit about their history. Um, and you learned that they were pretty badly bullied as a child, right? They have a trauma history. Um, and they also tell you that they were assaulted pretty badly as an adult by, um, say, an intimate partner, right? And these were pretty impactful life experiences on this person. And hopefully you're starting to see the connection between the reactions, those green column reactions, and some of these early experiences, right? Um, these things make sense to most of us who are helpers. Um, and maybe they also tell you a little bit about, um, you know, their, their biology or their temperament or their genetics, right? So maybe this person tells you, well, I have a family history of anxiety, um, or um, I have a medical condition that um, makes me feel chronic pain nearly every second of the day, right? And you can imagine how chronic pain would reduce your reserves and your ability to cope with stress, right? Your, your, um, your fuse, so to speak, is much shorter. And so imagine, fast forward to the bus situation and person gets up in your space, you're already not feeling safe. And on top of that, you've got chronic pain that just makes you wanna flip out, right? So what we're starting to see here, um, and, and maybe some of you are familiar with this way of thinking about clients, um, if you are great, if this is sort of new to you, um, then you know it, it can be a useful roadmap for thinking about how to integrate skills into work with your clients. Um, but we can see kind of how these things are chained together and how one thing impacts another, right? Um, 
so you know if we're if we're starting to to look at this and we're and we're listening very very closely to the clients about what what it is that really bothers them right you know if they're really focusing on emotions then that might be the spot that you're going to start to think about skills training with if they're really focusing on um you know thoughts great you know that might be an area that you're you're going to focus on so you know if if somebody says i i just really want to be able to sit with this this anxiety then example i might think already about well what skills could this person benefit from that might help in turning down this person's anxiety we may not be able to eliminate anxiety right nobody usually has a magic wand that will make it go poof, it probably wouldn't be a good thing to make it go poof either, right? We need anxiety. It does have a purpose. But the extent to which this person may be feeling that anxiety might be above and beyond and absolutely just uncontrollable. So how could we help them turn it down to the point where they can sit with the anxiety and function and say, get to work without getting off the bus and in trouble, right? Um, So we're already kind of looking through this lens of, okay, where where could I be um, thinking about skills for this client? Um, so just to, to kind of summarize um, each of these parts we just went over, um, and again, the point of, of kind of sharing this with you is, is to kind of wear these, wear these lenses to think about how you're, how you're um, listening to your clients. Um, so, you know, emotions are instinctive states of mind. Most of us know what an emotion is. Body sensations are those related physiological changes in the body, um, right? If I'm mad, I often get a temperature increase on my skin, right? If I'm feeling anxious, I might get tension, right? Tension is the body sensation, anxiety is the emotion. Um, behaviors, right? What you do or what you don't do, right? So um, if I am, you know, staying in bed all day, that's technically an action, right? Um, there's probably a lot of other things I'm not doing when I'm doing that. Um, I should also probably add here, there's something that comes before behaviors, which is urges, right? So we, we might have an urge to do an action before we do it. And that could also be an area that you might wanna focus on with skills training potentially, right? Thoughts are just those words or messages that go through your mind, right? And they're not, they're not always these conscious things. They can just be these very automatic things. They're often expletives, <laughs> or they're these things that just pop in really, really fast. And um, you know, it's not always clear. Like, oh, I just thought that, right? Like th- these things might be very, very fast. Um, those situations, if we go from right to left, that yellow box situations are those events, those experiences that happen around or even within you, right? So around, think of who, what, where, when. Um, I'm on the bus, it's Tuesday, it's 10 a.m., um, and there are about, you know, 20 people on this bus, right? So those are kind of the facts. Um, if it's an internal situation, people sometimes think about, well, I was sitting there and I started to have a memory of something that had happened to me previously. You could say that that is sort of an internal situation of sorts, right? Um, if we keep going to the left, um, that orange box, uh, beliefs, assumptions, um, those are kind of those, those are related to thoughts. Those are the kind of those, those truths that we hold to be um, the case about ourselves, the world and others, right? So people can be trusted. That's a very generalized belief, but some people really believe that people are out to get you pretty generalized, but could be something that people hold really, really strongly. 
Um, you know, eye for an eye. If somebody does something bad to you, you have, you're allowed to do something bad to them, right? These are all sorts of things that um, people may hold, and they can be very helpful at understanding those reactions. Um, life experiences, I think, pretty straightforward, right? These are these external events that will inform a lot of our reactions, right? And I should mention, life experiences are not just adverse or negative life experiences, right? So if I go through a traumatic event, um, you know, if I go through abuse, um, if I witness community-based violence, if I experience racism, if I, um, I mean, those are all presumably negative adverse events that will impact how we look at the world, that beliefs assumptions, and then also how our body reacts to the world. On the flip side, if I grow up with somebody who I feel very safe with and very attached to, and they're a source of um, kindness and empathy and um, safety, then that can have a very impactful um, uh, result on us as well. Um, and so, you know, just something to remember too is that, you know, when, when we think about people in this way, we're often focusing on what's going wrong. But if we also want to understand um, the skills that people are actually using to, to cope well, um, we can think about all of these sort of positive chains as well. Right. Um, biology and temperament, right? Any biological factor that informs these reactions to our world, right? So I think I mentioned earlier genetics, you know, um, medical conditions, um, all sorts of things related to your biology. So I'll, I'll um, move on from there, but just kind of want to give this to you as a roadmap to think about how and where we could intervene with skills training. Um, so just to kind of summarize that a little bit, um, you know, when when we're when we're meeting somebody and we're um, working with them, we're really working to elicit or listen to the client about what they want to change, right? And it needs to be driven by them, of course. Um, so, you know, this client in the example might actually say, I really want to feel calmer more often, right? It might be a, a pretty sort of seemingly straightforward thing, or I want to feel lighter in my chest. Um, I want to be able to hold down a job. I want less conflict with others. And, you know, they, they may say it in a whole lot of different ways. Um, but of course, you know, I want to feel calmer more often. They're telling you maybe emotions and body sensations is something that, that they'd like to focus on. Um, you know, I, I feel lighter in the chest, obviously body sensations. I want to hold down a job, probably a combination of a lot of things, right? So having a job, you know, is necessary for a lot of people for a lot of reasons, right? Financially, but also for their sense of self-worth and socializing. Um, so, you know, what's getting in the way of holding down the job? Is it emotions? Is it body sensations? Is it behaviors, right? And the example we gave here, this person gets off the bus too soon and then can't make it to work. Um, or maybe they get fired because they get into conflicts, um, right? That last one on there. So, so it could be a combination of behaviors, emotions, body sensations. So, so I think the point of all this is that um, if we listen closely, there may be a lot of entry points for skills training, right? So circling back around to what Jen um, started with, um, the kind of two truths to hold, um, we wanna try to simultaneously validate the client's experience while also opening up this possibility for building more skills and more, um, more abilities, right? So again, just to review, we wanna we wanna kind of hold these two truths. People are doing the best dang you know thing that they can to try to survive um, and to cope. And under the the 
often unfair circumstances that they live in. Um, and, right, they're coming to you for a reason, right? They're, they're sitting in front of you or they're working with you because something is not going well. And people obviously arrive to us for different reasons. Sometimes people are more voluntary than others, right? So I just want to put that out there because that, that's something we want to think about too. But the point being is, you know, people wouldn't be sitting in front of you if they didn't have any skills. So let's not forget that too, right? People have made it this far for a reason and they're not where they want to be. Otherwise, they might not be sitting with you. So, you know, this, this way of kind of validating them while also opening the door might look something like this, right? Given your history, and again, I'm using the example that we were using a second ago of this person on the bus. Given your history, and your history might mean history of trauma, um, bio biology, um, it's understandable how you would want to protect yourself in public places. What is more normal than wanting to protect yourself? Right. Everybody wants to feel safety. And it sounds like you want to feel calmer um, and be able to make it to work on the bus with less trouble. Right. Would you be open to trying out some new strategies to help you with that? Right. So, again, I'm, I'm glossing over this, but that that's sort of an attempt to kind of hold these two truths. And I want to I want to um, kind of zoom out a little bit more and just make a um, kind of a quick point. Um, that I think is important as you embark on doing skills training. And I, I would be curious, um, maybe at the end, if, if folks want to share, you know, their, their viewpoints about skills training, kind of the context that frames the work that you do um, and kind of how you approach it. Um, but I think one of the things to keep in mind when you do skills training um, is the following, right? We're doing work with clients who live in um, environmental circumstances that are often horrible and unfair right and unjust and we are trying to help them exist and thrive the best that that they can within those environments um what i mean by that right poverty racism inequities in housing um community-based violence i don't probably need to say this list to you all you probably are very familiar with it um so these folks are in these situations that they haven't chosen for themselves. And we're sort of saying to them, all right, we're gonna, at least in the case of coping skills, we're gonna try to help you to, to navigate that the best that you can. Um, what we wanna be careful of is not forgetting that we wanna also work on those root causes. <laughs> and this may be beyond our scope, but it's an important thing to think about when you're approaching clients with skills because you don't want it to come off as if you're saying, well, it's your fault that you're in this, you need to put up with it. <laughs> and and that's a really that's a really tricky thing, right? Because it's sort of like, well, you live in a in a crappy situation, so you need to cope better with that situation, right? Um, and yes, we are we're saying that you know something is not working. We we are we're trying to give you skills to try to help with that. And we also want to validate though that that situation is not of their doing and that we also need to be working on these bigger structural things. So I, I'm just saying this to kind of encourage all of you to um, not forget that piece. I'm sure you have not forgotten that. Um, but we unfortunately are operating under these incredibly challenging and huge um, unjust structural environments. Um, and we're trying to teach people how to, how to deal with them, right? So 
help people to build skills, but also validate that those environments are unjust and be working towards um, doing, you know, anti-racist work, um, you know, reducing community-based violence, um, you know, we're working on all those, those upstream issues as well. Um, Jen, did you want to add anything? <laughs> I was just thinking, as you were talking, I was thinking about, there's so many times, and I think you mentioned this before, um, people are court ordered to treatment. Um, they're, uh, everybody's got different life um, stuff, right? They come into treatment. Um, we encounter them in different situations and various circumstances. And we know that people who are court ordered to treatment have, you know, pretty similar outcomes as the people who come on their own free will. So, um, keeping that in mind and understanding, um, and we'll talk about this later as we talk about eliciting goals for people or just really understanding what a person's goal might be, is um, that, you know, what is important, we might, we might have an understanding of what's important for the client, right? We might have, the court might have an understanding of what's important for the client, the city might, whoever might, their probation officer, whatever it might be. Um, their mom, you know, what's important for them. Um, but what's important to the person is really what we're getting at. And I think then when we can get at and understand what's important to that person, then we really can help um, help people just really and help uh, like get buy-in and enhance their motivation for actually making pretty significant changes in their life, hopefully. So um, I was thinking about that as you were talking. And um, um, I think that's also important to keep in mind our own biases of what we might think is important for somebody. Like, I might think it's really important for you to stay in treatment for three months. Um, but what's important to you? What's important to the client, right? That's just those two things to hold. And I think about that when we're validating and opening the door for skills, too. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I would I would completely agree with with Jen on that and um, right. I mean, it, there's, there's sort of an intuitive point, right? Which is that, like, it's going to work better if the client actually wants to do it. Right. And, and we, we sometimes though, even if someone isn't court ordered, we sometimes still impose our own, mm -hmm. our own sort of views about like, I know that you keep ending up in the hospital and that's not good for the system. It's probably not good for you, but the, the client's like, eh, you know, I, I'm, that's not something I'm really that interested in. And I'm sure we've all been there where, where we are really frustrated and, um, you know, we're like, I, I can see this client just, you know, spiraling. And um, I really think that this client should be doing this skill and, and the client is sort of pushing back. And, um, you know, we, we want to ask some important questions um, that Jenna is pointing to about like, is this my skills goal for this client or is this that the client's actual goal? Right. Um, yeah. Yes, um, absolutely. And I think, you know, that that comes to mind, too, when you're working in an agency that's imposing um, rules or regulations for um, participating in programming or, um, you know, you think about treatment planning, too. I think we talk about that a little bit later. I'm in the slides of treatment planning and, um, you know, what what that might look like from an agency standpoint and what it might look like from from your view and then what it looks like from the client. And hopefully we can kind of integrate all of those things um, and identify what might help this person, what might help them into their understanding of what recovery might look like for them. Um, great, so when, so here we're talking about a behavioral rehearsal, these are the steps. Amazing, we've got all these beautiful steps. Um, the green are actually the core steps of what a behavioral rehearsal skills training looks like. So, um, and then the blue is goal setting and skill matching and those are like the pre 
pre-steps. Um, so when we look at the steps of behavioral rehearsal or setting things up with clients, you might think about like what you've done with your clients. So for, for um, whomever mentioned doing an Excel spreadsheet for budgeting, like what, what steps do you go through to get there? Right. So you're thinking, oh, you know, this person has a goal of maybe getting an apartment at some point in their life. That might be a goal. I think that, you know, maybe a good skill might be to help manage their money so that maybe that's where the budgeting came from. So those two things are really important. Um, but once we've once we've understood what our clients goals are for themselves, um, then we, we think about how we're going to match the appropriate skill. And we're get, hopefully going to have some experience doing the actual skill ourselves. That's kind of an important part too. Um, and then we're going to get into the steps. So step one is to, to create a rationale. And most often what we want to do is elicit a rationale. Like we want to ask, why do you think creating a budget would be important to you? What, how do you think that that would have, you know, positively impact you? Um, so creating a reason why and having that be really explicit is important because we might be like, oh, that budget sounds like a great idea, but I haven't really identified why. Is it because society tells me it's a good thing to do or is it because I really feel like it might help me? Um, and that's part of the buy-in process. If someone feels connected to that, then they're going to be much more likely to continue on with the steps and maybe practice that in, uh, in real life. So um, then step two is identifying the steps. We always encourage to do this collaboratively with our clients um, and just figure out what might work best for them and what, what they're comfortable with. Um, step three is to demonstrate. So that's where the modeling comes in. We're going to model what that might look like um, in real life. And then we're going to role play with our clients. So we'll do a little skit or <clears throat> practice just in session in that moment um, um, what the situation might be. And then we get feedback. So we're asking people, would that feel like for you? How did it look? What would you change? Is there anything that you would change, if anything? Um, and then practice is st uh, step six. And practicing is practicing more in session, practicing with other people, and making a plan for how this person might carry out the new skill in, in their daily life, right? Or in group or in life or in a sober house or wherever that may be. Um, so these are the steps of behavioral rehearsal or skills training. Um, and I think, did I miss anything, Michael? No. no okay, good. No, no. Yeah. Good. So, I'm oh, sorry. Good. Go ahead. You go. No, no. I, I was just going to say, if, if you look at this and you're like, oh my God, that's a lot of steps. Um, don't, don't fear. Right. I mean, a, a lot of you who have done a lot of the skill training stuff, um, you know, I think it's a good thing to like reflect on. Oh, okay. I definitely do that. Did I do that? Maybe I kind of gloss over that one. You know, if you don't end up very overtly doing a step and being like, oh yeah, I just did step three. You know, you still could get to the end point of helping a client get a skill. So um, I don't want folks to get, you know, super anxious about, mm. oh my God, like I'm, this is so many steps because when you actually do it in practice, as many of you know, um, it can happen pretty quickly. Um, so just wanted to put that out there. Sorry. Yeah. And we get to model what it looks like making mistakes. So if we miss a part or if we screw things up or something goes awry, it's okay. There's, there's room for um, modeling what it looks like to maybe gracefully or comically make a mistake. So um, that part's really important to skills training too. So Michael and I are going to kind of go into each section and talk about it and open it up a little bit further. So I'll talk a little bit here about uh, goal setting and then skill matching. Okay, so when we talk about goal setting, it's really, uh, we're talking about setting up a behavioral rehearsal. And what we want to do is elicit a client's goal for improvement. 
or just a client's goal in general. It might not even be for any kind of improvement, just some kind of change. So um, <clears throat> it's a kind of a core, uh, a core part of motivational interviewing, actually, when then listening for change talk, when we're talking about the stages of change and the model of change, we're listening for people to make comments um, about a part of their life or a particular behavior or a relationship or something like that, where it's like, oh, I wish, you know, I wish such and such was different. Um, I wish I could get on the bus and actually make it all the way to work. I wish, you know, such and such would be different. Um, they might be talking about like, I'm really having a hard time with blah, blah, blah. Um, or I think that such and such needs to change in my life. Or um, they're in kind of some preparation or action stage of, of what they want to improve. And so we listen for that, what we call change talk. And so we, what we want to do is elicit what progress would be different for the client. So we listen for that change talk and we're like, oh, okay, well, you wish such and such was different. And we might ask, well, if you felt better, what would there be more or less of? Um, how would your life be different? We talk about the miracle question. If you woke up tomorrow and your whole life had changed to where it was great, um, what would it look like? Um, like, what might other people see in you? Those are the things that we're talking about when we're trying to elicit a client's goal, um, something that's important to them, as we'd mentioned. And they might already have, like, a really solid idea of what that is. I want to get my kids back. Um, I want to get, I don't want CPS or anybody following what I do with my kids or my life. I don't want that anymore. I don't want court involvement or probation. I just want to get out of probation. Great goal. That's awesome. What can we do? Like, what can we, what can we choose to work on? Um, and that might show up in their recovery or treatment planning and it might not. So behavior rehearsal is a great, um, tool and thing to integrate into a person's treatment planning as they go um, in order to track any kind of progress. Um, and I think, Michael, you maybe you have more to say about that one. Um, sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I, um, I, I think a lot of us um, are probably in, in spaces or work for agencies where we have to do formal treatment plans. Um, some of us maybe do less formal treatment plans or recovery plans, um, depending on the language. And um, you know, doing skills training as a general um, activity with clients can be a really concrete way to bring to life uh, treatment plans, which many of us probably feel are kind of an afterthought. I don't know if that's true for a lot of you. If you work in big agencies, it's often like a checkbox, like, oh, we, we had to do a treatment plan. And a lot of us have probably been in a space where we're like, you know, the treatment plan is not so useful. If you're in a space where you feel like your treatment plans are incredibly useful, um, awesome, great, that that's wonderful. And um, frankly, that's the sort of space we all want to be in. Um, but I, I think the point is, is that, you know, when we, when we're eliciting a client's goal for improvement, you know, we want the treatment plan to reflect that. And again, if we take it a step further, right, the skills training might be the intervention that helps us to work towards that goal, right? Mm -hmm. um, one thing I, I would also just add to what Jen was saying about the eliciting what progress would be for the client, right? There are a lot of ways that people talk about what progress is for them. Um, 
you know, there's there's not a singular thing that people focus on. And, and often those treatment plans, if, if you have an agency where they're like pre-generated treatment goals, I don't know if anybody sort of works in that kind of a space. You're kind of like, man, I'm trying to fit what the client is saying into these sort of like pre-written drop downs. That can be kind of a hard way to um, to make a sort of a meaningful treatment plan, which we want it to be. Um, but, you know, some of the ways that that clients talk about, you know, change or improvement, some clients might focus on symptoms, right? I feel sad. I have panic attacks. Some people might talk about quality of life, right? Jen mentioned, I want to get my kids back, right? Um, if we follow that, right, what would it, what would happen if you got your kids back? Um, well, I, I would be elated. <laughs> I would be rejoined with my kids. It would make my life so much better. Right? So they're, they're essentially saying there's this goal that would impact me in the following way. Um, some people talk about very specific coping goals, right? I want to be able to deal with my stress better, right? So it's that's almost like a, a platter for, please, I need more skills potentially, <laughs> right? It's like um, they, they've already identified that there's something that they don't feel like they do very well. And they're, they're sort of asking, like, I, I need something new. I need to learn something. Um, you know, there, there are people who just talk about, I, my goal is to, to get more insight. I mean, people may not say that, but they, I, I want to understand myself better. Right. Um, you know, is, is that, that's sort of a more abstract, um, treatment goal, but it's one that's incredibly important to every one of our clients, right? Like everyone's like, I, I just want to know myself better so I can live better or, you know, we can follow the chain again and say, what would it mean to live better? Right. So, um, you know, it's, it's, I think it's a useful thing, one, to, to listen for the variety of ways that the language that your client uses to talk about progress. Um, and, you know, this leads to also thinking about the different ways we measure progress, um, but also with regards to the treatment plan point. Um, if we can integrate skills training, if the client is open to it and it seems warranted, um, it can be a really nice way to bring to life these treatment plans that often are kind of an afterthought. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, perfect. And then any change talk, it's just any statement about a person's desire, um, ability or reasons that they might need or want to make any kind of changes in their life. So um, again, it could be just someone that you're working with a very small teeny weeny goal where it's like, I just want to get out of bed this morning. Like, I just want to I just want to do something. I want to get out of bed this morning. That might be a, a big goal for them. That might be a big goal for them, but something that we might perceive as, you know, small, right? Or something that is like brushing your teeth on a daily basis, or it might be something as complex as getting a job, like those sorts of goals too, or, or you know, understanding myself better. Um, but they can be on a wide range or wide spectrum of, of lots of different things. And to, to that point that Jen just made, um, the sometimes it can take breaking down bigger goals into smaller goals mm -hmm. um, to make them more concrete. And that can be very, that is very important when you're trying to think of behavioral rehearsal and skills training, right? Like, like how do I, where do I even start with getting to know myself? <laughs> how do I, how do I do a skills training, you know, intervention with getting to know myself? I, there, there probably are a lot of creative ways you could think about that. But, you know, if, if I could sort of break that down into smaller things or, you know, the getting out of the bed, uh, maybe their ultimate goal is 
holding the job, right? We were saying that in the earlier example with the person who gets off the bus because they get really panicky. Um, you know, maybe there are days that the person doesn't even leave the house, right? So literally getting out of bed might be the skills training piece that you're doing with the client. Um, we might even call it skills coaching too, right? So um, a lot of what we're presenting, I think we've probably said a few times, we, we could think of it as new skills, right? Skills that maybe the client hasn't um, necessarily learned previously, but we can also think of skills that maybe the client has some experience with or at one point, I could get out of bed really easily. Mm -hmm. So just because I cognitively know how to get out of bed, right, doesn't mean it's easy for me to get out of bed. So in that case, you know, we, we could be doing, um, we're doing behavioral rehearsal, we're rehearsing a skill that the client may on some level already know how to do. But because of the illness or the things that they the challenges they've been dealing with, we're, we're sort of reviewing that again. So uh, when we're doing goal setting, goal setting should be dynamic too, right? Just because you set off to do a particular goal at time one, right? When you first start working with the client, you know, we, most of us do goal setting regularly, or we should be doing goal setting regularly where we check back in and we say, not only how are we doing on the goal, but are your goals still the same, right? Have, maybe we haven't accomplished that goal um, do you still want to keep working on it? And are we approaching it correctly, right? So, so not, we don't want to assume that everything is set in stone. Um, the process of goal setting should be dynamic and um, we should be ready to kind of break things down a little bit more sometimes because that, that can make it a lot easier to kind of match the goal with the, um, with the skill, which we'll talk about in a second. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, perfect. Okay. So goal setting, and then we talk about, so we kind of understand, we might have an idea of what a person's goal might be. Um, it might be to uh, get your kid back or get your children back or not be involved in CPS or whatever it might be. Um, and then we move on to um, the actual skill matching. Okay, now I see where this person wants to go and what they might want to do. What skill might be helpful um, for them in getting there? It might be a bunch of different skills. We don't know. It might be just one specific skill that we could start with. Um, but we think about that when we're thinking, you know, when we're talking about skill matching. So it's good to have, um, it's good to, as a practitioner, it's nice to have a few skills that you feel comfortable with. Um, so you might have like a grounding skill that you feel comfortable using with someone, or you might have, um, uh, you know, walking through setting an alarm with someone on their phone. Like that might be something that you're used to doing. Um, it's nice as a practitioner to kind of practice that too and get used to having those skills so you can go right to them as soon as you hear that change talk and you understand what a person's goal is that you can match the skill um, and use it in that case sometimes the skill doesn't always match properly and that's okay too um like i said it's a kind of a nice way to be able to model what it's like to be like oh you know maybe that's not a good fit let's think about something else that might be helpful for you um, so we talk about coping skills, those are grounding distractions, self-soothing skills, those interpersonal or social skills like assertiveness training, learning how to say no. Um, some people have a really difficult time saying no. Um, and those daily life skills, which are like making the bed or um, taking medications. So um, we want to make sure that the skill um, is something that we can competently and feasibly teach. So uh, that budgeting skill, that can be really hard. Like if you didn't know how to budget or just do a basic budget, that, I mean, that could be really complex. That could, for me, like that could get 
way, I can get way off the charts, like in a weird complex place, but keeping it really simple for a client is really important because then we're able to, to, you know, talk about the steps of the skill, model the skill, role play and have it go pretty smoothly and then build on that if needs be. There's like lots of different ways that you can build on it. So um, yeah, selecting the skill that you can teach, um, building your catalog of skills. Sometimes it's nice to go to skills training like these. This is kind of a general overview, although we will model some particular skills for you a little bit later. Um, but just having something that you are familiar with, um, talk to your team, use supervision, always like ask people, what do you do for skills training? How does that work for you? Um, that can be a really helpful thing to do within your agency. Uh, having back pocket or go-to skills, um, like, you know, something that you just love to do with people. Um, grounding skill. I love doing grounding skills with people. It's one of my favorite things. Um, not useful for everybody, but I, I like to use it. Um, and then just be flexible. Trial and error. Help clients adapt skills. One size does not fit all. Again, it's okay to, like, make a mistake and try over again and, and talk through it. Um, so that skill matching piece sometimes can be a forgotten about part, right? We just talk about the six steps of skills training, but you don't, if you don't know what skill matches a person's goal, it can be like, ah, well, I guess I just do, I'll just do grounding and we'll throw that in there. And, a lot, and sometimes that can be kind of a miss. So um, I think we think about too, I'm thinking about this as I'm talking, but skill matching for people in individual sessions versus like a group session is a totally different situation for those of you who work in groups sometimes it's really fun to practice a skill it might not be a good fit for everybody but some people it might hit right so it's not as tailored but you can get a good idea of where people are at maybe i'll i'll read um so had a question which is a really great question um and i, I wonder if this might apply to a lot of you here, um, and Susan, certainly feel free to um, jump in verbally if you want to add anything to this, but um, it seems these interventions are appropriate for paraprofessionals to use, but where is the line between doing rehab and doing therapy? Mm -hmm. So far as Susan says, as a supervisor and trainer, I'm often approached with questions about how deep a mental health worker can go and also questions from therapists about whether they're doing therapy when they're working on skill building. My just like initial um, reaction, and this, this may be different depending on who you ask, um, I, I think skill building is therapy. <laughs> I also think that skill building doesn't have to be quote unquote therapy in some traditional sense. So I, I guess it, it depends on how you, skill building is therapeutic. Right. That's sort of how, how I think of it. I guess I, I would wonder what what you mean by doing therapy as separate from skill building. I, I have some idea about that, but I would want to know more about how you're thinking about or the person asking, am I doing therapy or skill building? Um, it says with regard to billing. <laughs> right. And documentation. Mm -hmm. That's a good question. I, um, I agree with you, Michael. I think that it's skill building is therapy. Um, and, um, I think there is a fine line that we draw between, um, doing any sort of work with a person as far as ex like exposure therapy, getting them into a point where they'd be really, really anxious or they're struggling with some depression. Um, and we're focusing in on a skill that, um, 
might be somewhat similar to like an exposure therapy? That's a good question. And I don't know as far as regard to billing and documentation. I'm I'm not entirely sure. I think um, if you're a licensed like clinical therapist, billing and documentation is um, the same um, for if you're doing skills building or a specific you know therapy therapy. Um, but I suppose it's different for those of you who are working in an FSP. And we're in a situation where we, you might be going into a person's home or um, any kind of like unlicensed care too. Um, but I think those basic life skills in particular are a focus um, in those situations. And I think just naturally they impact a person's overall well-being, right? So it's, it's a tough question. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's a good point. And I, I just to state maybe the obvious, but I think it's important, right? Every state's going to be different, probably um, mm -hmm. with billing. Every system might be different with building, billing. Um, you know, I, I think, right, there's billing and then there's what we actually do, the work we're doing. And I, I think sometimes we draw these um, artificial distinctions between what we do and what we don't do as a therapist versus as a a mental health worker. Um, having said all of that, you want to follow a couple things. Um, your agency's definitions of, of what they say your scope of practice is, mm -hmm. like your um, licensure board, if your license says your scope of practice is, uh, what you yourself feel you are trained to do, right? Um, which has nothing to do with licensure necessarily, right? I mean, I I, I'm not, if I'm not trained in exposure therapy, even though I'm a licensed um, social worker, I should be delivering it. That That's out of my, you know, my skill set. Um, so I think there's a few different moving, moving parts that we have to think about. Um, um, makes a good point. I think processing emotions and trauma are more therapy billing, coping skills and practicing communication rehab billing. Um, maybe, maybe. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, right, that's one definition of, of, right, the therapist is kind of going into sort of processing the deep emotions and those events that may have happened to somebody, but then maybe rehab folks are doing kind of the, what do I do with it in the present? That might be one definition. I, I will say, I mean, there, there are a lot of very present focused therapists who do, right, they might do the, the processing of emotions, but they also are actually preparing the client for how to deal with those emotions ahead of time. Right. So they might actually do skill building first before even going into any of the emotions. Right. Because um, if I open up the floodgate and I can't close the floodgate back up and the person goes out into the world between times that they see you and then they just unravel, that's not very helpful. So I need to prepare them with the skills before I even go into doing that. So I think they, they kind of work in tandem in the example there. Um, yeah, that's a complicated one. Yeah. Um, does anybody else, I just want to throw that out to the rest of, of the folks on the training. Does anyone have a, have a thought about that, right? Where, where is the line between kind of skill building and therapy? And I'm putting it in quotes because I think there's a lot of definitions. Is there a line? Is, you know, is it artificial? Is it real and true? And <laughs> what, do, what do folks think? You, you bring up um, one of the most important ingredients of really any treatment period, whether you call it therapy or rehab or whatever you call what you do, um, which is alliance, right? And when we think of skills training, 
if I don't have some alliance or trust with my client, why would that client want to learn anything from me? Right. Why would they even want to talk to me? Why would they even want to engage with me? And, um, you know, again, we, we may, we may sort of think to ourselves, well, I'm, I'm just doing the skills thing and they're doing the emotion thing. Right. But they, they build on each other. Right. Like as you just illustrated, right. If I, if my client feels like they're quote, getting something done, right. Like we actually went out and we did something and I accomplished it. I'm going to feel more likely to maybe open up to you and say like, we accomplished something. And I want to tell you a little bit more about me and then vice versa. Right. Um, if I, if I'm able to tell you a little bit more about me, then you as the clinician can then start to think about, all right, well, what other things can we do together. So it becomes this nice circular thing. And whether or not you, I don't know how many of you are working with folks um, that are in multiple settings, right, where they see a therapist, you know, for their once a week session, and then you're doing rehab work with them, you're doing case management, um, it really depends on where you work. But um, it's a nice illustration of how these things work in tandem. And there's, you know, when we have wraparound services, um, skills training impacts emotional processing and emotional processing impacts skills training, regardless of who's doing it. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, seek supervision, understand your agency guidelines, yeah. understand um, your licensure guidelines as well. All right, so um, we're still talking about skill matching. Um, and skill matching, again, is just understanding a person's goals and matching the appropriate or what we think or feel might be appropriate in that situation. Um, so here are some just some examples. So we're thinking about this person comes in and they want to reduce cutting from five days a week to three days a week. What skill are we going to choose? We might use a grounding skill. That's great because it's my favorite. Um, another example would be reducing arguments with a partner. This person might, you know, be helped by a social skill like active listening skill. Just walking a person through the steps of what active listening might be. And this is, I guess this is something that I was thinking about as we were talking um, earlier, is that um, in social skills training, there's also this, there are a couple different elements. It's kind of complex. So you think about like um, a person's thoughts, like throughout the process, but also like their um, body um how how they're moving how they're listening like active listening if you think about it you're not necessarily talking the whole time right and your body's facing that person and there's eye contact involved and that can be really hard for a lot of people um having that you know maintaining eye contact uh, that might not be an ingredient of this particular skill for this person right so you might focus in on like focusing in on something else in the room but keeping their body towards turned towards that person we can kind of um, tailor that as we go. But um, yeah, there's that social skill of active listening that might help to reduce arguments with a partner. Um, staying out of the emergency room. The person might say, you know what, I'm sick of being in and out of the emergency room. Um, and they might benefit from a skill like using a pillbox um, to keep their medication straight because maybe um, they're having issues remembering to take their medications properly and they're starting to have symptoms and just be kind of dysregulated. So um, maybe they might be benefited by uh, using a pillbox. So um, that's something that we could practice in session or in uh, with a person. Um, really quickly before we move on to the, the six steps, um, just to reinforce a point um, about kind of the, the skill matching. Um, I think we would want to encourage folks to feel empowered not to um, 
teach a skill that they don't feel comfortable teaching. Um, and this kind of just piggybacks on the um, really good comments from other folks about boundaries between like, what's my role? I mean, that, that's a great question and one that you should always be asking, you know, am I still within my scope of practice? Obviously, those definitions might be a little bit vague sometimes or just different depending on where you're working and who's communicating what to you. But, um, you know, at, at the at the end of the day, you know, you 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 don't want to, to do something that you think is going to do harm to somebody. Um, and that's that's far further away than am I going to do a perfect job at this, right? That's a little bit different. Um, you know, it, it might be, well, you know, I, I could teach this client how to cook. I don't think I'm a great cook. That doesn't mean that, you know, perfection shouldn't be the standard. <laughs> I guess that's maybe what I'm trying to get at. Um, perfection is very different than out of, um, uh, out of the scope of practice where, where there's damage. Um, so, you know, take that seriously. And, and, you know, I, I think just to validate, um, what a lot of us have probably experienced, we, we probably work in under circumstances where resources are, are very thin. Um, we are probably forced in ways that feel kind of uncomfortable a lot of the time to, um, to do things that maybe are outside of our scope of practice. And, and that, I think that's a bigger conversation, um, and this is probably not the forum for that, but I, I just want to put that out there that, um, you know, we're, there's a lot of pressure on us as mental health helpers to do things like magically keep people out of the hospital, right? Like, like people from on high will say, figure out how to do it. We don't care how, just make it happen. And you're like, are you going to train me? <laughs> are you, are you going to, are you going to provide me with the resources? And I just want to, I just want to validate that if, if that resonates with other folks, um, because, at the end of the day, this work is probably the hardest thing that, that we can think about doing, helping other people deal with their lives. And it's also one of the most important things that, that any of us could probably do. So um, we want to do it well, right? So we don't want to do it in a way that, that causes damage to other people. Um, so I'll just, I'll pause with that. But um, let's talk about the actual steps. Um, and again, as we go through these, I suspect some of these will be very intuitive, um, we'll hopefully uh, bring up considerations that maybe you've thought about or maybe you haven't thought about. Um, so step one, rationale, right? Jen laid these out um, briefly uh, right after the break, um, or maybe it was before the break, I can't remember, uh, maybe both. Um, so this first step, after you do the skill, um, the goal setting and then the skill matching, we're kind of calling those the pre-behavioral rehearsal steps. Um, is to then, so that the client has told you what they want to work on and whatever words they use, and you have come up with some sort of a skill that might be a good fit for that. And um, again, that might be through a collaborative process. Hopefully it is a collaborative process where you can kind of bring the client in to sort of tell you a little bit more about, well, maybe, maybe you actually have that skill and can we build upon that skill, right? It's not just necessarily, I'm going to take the skill out of my pocket and say, we're going to do this. There might be some situations where we're going to do that, but that, that leads us into the rationale, right? So depending on how that skill matching happened may very well help or hinder the rationale building part, right? So if the client feels like they had agency and how um, the goal setting happened, which hopefully they are the main person who had control over that, um, and how the skill was maybe matched, 
um, then they're going to be more likely to sort of buy into it and to say, all right, you know, this, this seemed like an open process where, you know, my, my provider, my helper discussed out loud, you know, what they were thinking, right? Transparency is a really good thing when you're doing um, skill matching. Um, you know, if the client's like, I have no idea how to deal with my alcohol use disorder, right? Like I, I'm just drinking and I'm here, I'm, I'm laying it in your lap, right? We've probably all been there where it's like, fix me um, magically. And you're like, oh my God. Um, but so, so you, you start somewhere and you, and you might say, you might approach it from, well, what's worked in the past or, and they might say nothing and you'll say, okay, well, maybe we can start from here and you pull something out. Right. So that, that could still work, but it certainly helps to have the client thinking about um, ideas that are coming from somewhere internal, even if it's something that they themselves haven't tried, but they've heard other people do, right. It's already kind of in their consciousness somewhere, or maybe they've tried it in the past and it's worked, but currently it's not working. Okay. That's still a foundation to start from. So there's a lot of entry points when we, when we think about rationale, but the bottom line is we're trying to discuss with the client openly reasons motivations for why they would want to use the skill or learn the skill right um, so if we make a distinction here um, between eliciting rationale from the client versus offering rationale to the client I kind of just illustrated that a little bit but eliciting by that we mean you know we, we're trying to ask hopefully open-ended questions of the client um, to see if, if they could generate their own um, understanding of like, well, why, why would I want to learn this, right? Um, if it's coming from them, that's ideal. Um, so we'll give you some examples here. And, and by the way, um, some of these examples um, are in a setting where you're working with an individual. So it's just one-on-one. -on -one. Um, but we also put in parentheses group for, let's say that I'm in kind of a group setting. Um, and I don't necessarily just mean group therapy, but just a setting where you've got more than one client and they're kind of interfacing with each other as well as you. Just to kind of think about what this would look like in each of those settings. So it could be something simple, like how might it be helpful to improve your listening skills? So we'll, we'll use that example as we go through here. So you've already decided, you know, the client says to you, um, I'm having terrible conflicts with my uh, spouse, my partner, and um, you know we're just we're at each other's throats. Um, and uh, you know the you, the provider, and the client somehow come up with, well, you know, hey, would would improving your listening be something that that you think could help with that process? And they say, sure. Um, okay, so how might it be helpful, right? And you know the client then might go into, well. You know, if both of us listened better, maybe we would be less irritable when, you know, the other person said something. Um, maybe I would I would be a little bit more present if I was listening more actively, as opposed to in my own head where I'm having these scripts going on about like uh, that person just, you know, she just really wants to like screw me over. She just really wants to screw me over as opposed to actually listening to what the person was saying. Um, so it might be as simple as that. If I'm in a group setting, um, and there is some alliance between the, the different group members. And when I say alliance, I mean, you know, they're, they're interacting in a way that is productive. Um, you know, you might actually throw it to the group. How might John's life improve if he can hone his listening skills, right? Um, so see if, you know, particularly if a client is having a hard time um, generating their own rationale. Sometimes it helps to get other people to kind of put it out there. And then the client's like, okay, yeah, maybe that, that might be a good way to improve my, um, my life as well. Um, so on the flip side, the offering rationale to the client, you know, sometimes we have to do that. And sometimes, you know, the client sort of just says, I have no clue um, how this would help me. And it's okay to offer that. It's okay to sort of say, well, you know, 
listening might improve your life in the following way. Um, just food for thought. Um, and you can always preface this with, you know, I, I don't know for sure, you know, but just just kind of something to consider, something to be curious about. I wonder what it would be like. Um, I wonder if maybe if you could improve how well you tune in to listening, whether you might actually end up walking away feeling like your communication was better, right? Um, it doesn't have to be this like, this will improve your life. I mean, Cause you don't know, you don't know if it's gonna improve their life in the way that you predict. Um, you may have a prediction, but better to kind of take a gentle approach. Having said that, you know, I, all of our styles are different and different clients respond differently to different things. So you at the end of the day, know your clients better than anybody else. So mm -hmm. um, obviously use your judgment there. Yeah. Yeah. Two really cool. You can just add what if. What if it might help your relationship with your partner? Let's, right. Yeah. What if, right. <laughs> what if you woke up the next day after yeah. having listened and you had coffee together, <laughs> right? And you didn't yell at each other as opposed to, you know, completely stonewalling one another and sitting on opposite ends of, mm -hmm. of your own, you know? Um, so use your style, yeah. Um, this kind of just illustrates that in a little bit more depth to like basically getting at the same thing through eliciting versus offering, right? Again, eliciting is you're, you're trying to get the client to generate. Offering is you're giving it as the helper. So um, how might this skill help you reach your goal, whatever that goal is? So if the client's like, you know, I, I want to have, um, I just want to get along better with my, my spouse um, versus offering, the skill could help you reach your goal in the following way. If you were able to listen a little bit more, you know, maybe um, you guys would spend more time together. And if you spend more time together, then you might feel better happiness, you know, whatever it is that they um, might have offered to you. Um, if you got good at this skill, how might it help? So that that kind of highlights um, something that we'll talk about in just a second, which is a client's confidence might not be very high, right? If it's a new skill, we said this a little bit earlier, right? Doing new skills can be really scary. And, um, you know, this is an if statement. If you got good at the skill, right? How might it actually help you? Um, versus if we practice the skill, it will help with your problem in the following way, right? Or it could help. Um, I think I probably should not have put will on there because it's better to not, not predict it in such a way. But, um, you know, if we practice this skill, it's possible that it might help you in the following way. Um, in what situations could you use the skill? That's always important, right? So a lot of times people might understand the steps of the skill, but they may be having a hard time thinking about like, okay, how would this work in reality? Right. And that's a really important, maybe the most important step after they've learned it is like, how would I apply this? Right. It doesn't help to kind of know something in the abstract without understanding how it would actually work in real life. Um, so asking that question in what situations could you use the skill could actually help the client bring it down to earth a little bit and to say, you know, OK, I, I, can, I guess I could see myself listening, doing these active listening steps um, if we were in the house, but I'm not sure if we were in public, if I'd be able to do this, right? So you're already getting into some more nuance, but it's, it's a little bit more concrete. Um, this skill could help with the symptoms that get in your way, right? In the following way. Um, or so that could be a situation, right? When you are feeling um, really, really disconnected from your spouse and resentful or angry, um, it might help to try to get yourself out of your own head and really try to follow the words of your, of your spouse or to take, take two breaths before, if you notice yourself getting into that mental space, 
take a couple of breaths just to kind of get yourself out of your own head, right? Um, so that's sort of a little bit more directive. How could you use the skill, kind of a similar thing, um, versus the skill could help with stress? Again, each of those might be helpful in different scenarios. Um, what would happen if we practiced the skill? Jen was kind of highlighting that one, right? Um, practicing will make you feel more confident or could make you feel more confident, right? Um, so hopefully this is um, just hammering home that idea that if we can elicit rationale from clients, awesome. Um, if we can't, we can offer it and we can give it to the client and then they can tell us if they agree or not agree. Um, but these are both tools you want to have in your toolbox. All right. Um, we've alluded to this a couple of times, but it's really important to rationale. So when you're thinking about helping a client buy in to doing skill training, be sure on some level, and you can do this in a lot of different ways, to gauge the client's readiness to do skill training or behavioral rehearsal. Um, by the way, we're using kind of skill training and behavioral rehearsal kind of interchangeably. So if, if you're noticing us kind of using different language, um, we're treating it the same way. Um, we're not thinking they're sort of different. Um, so two kind of important things to think about um, as you're embarking on skill training with a client is how important is it to the client um, to engage in the skill. So in this case, again, we're just using the example of active listening. Um, and when we think of importance, we're, we're thinking about like the client's perception of how, how important this change would be. So um, if my current sort of uh, style with my spouse is to fold my arms and look away, right, while, while my spouse is, is talking, um, that's the status quo, right? And perhaps the new skill that I'm working with my client on is to make more eye contact. Let's say something simple like that to, to try to make more eye contact and maybe unfold your arms, but let's just go with eye contact, right? So I'm still folding my arms, but I'm actually looking at the person. Um, so how important would it be to make that change, to, to go from, un, you know, unfold your arms and actually try to make some eye contact um, versus to continue to do that, right? And so that, that could be a longer conversation just about like, what does it do for you? How are you feeling when you close your, you know, you, you sort of close off and you look away? Well, I'm feeling really pissed and um, I don't feel like my spouse deserves my attention. Um, so it's, a, you know, they may not be saying this, but through your conversation, maybe it, it turns out that this is a way uh, for that person to feel kind of empowered, like I, I have some, I have some control in the situation. At least I don't have to look at you. You know, um, it could be a lot of different things. So I, if I can understand what it does for the client to continue to engage in the behavior or the, you know, the emotion or the thinking pattern, then that could help me to understand um, a little bit about um, whether you know they're motivated to actually want to change it. Um, and then just lastly, with confidence, right, we mentioned this earlier, I could perceive something as being really important to change, um, but not be ready, not, not feel confident, not feel like I have the skill. So yeah, I, I get into trouble with my, with my spouse, um, and I don't know how to do it any differently. And that's actually a great invitation to, um, 
to do skills training potentially, because they're actually asking you to be like, show me how to do it differently, right? Um, so just be aware of that because you, you may you may embark on skills training and then realize, well, my client is pushing back. They don't really want to do it. They verbally say that they don't want to do it or they I give them a little sort of reflection practice exercise at home and they come back and they're like, yeah, I didn't really do it. Um, so you may be thinking, this comes back to what Jen was mentioning earlier in the training, um, you know, it may be important to you and you may be confident that the client can can learn it, but does the client actually feel like it's important? And, um, you know, how confident are they feeling? If they don't feel very confident, that's okay, right? Because you're going to try to help increase their confidence. Um, but don't forget about these two. These are really important. All right, we'll keep moving. Um, step two is um, steps, as we call it. And I think this is pretty straightforward. Um, but it's really important. Break the skill down into manageable steps, right? Um, you know, imagine that you are running a marathon, um, you know, or doing something incredibly long and tedious and maybe terrible. I don't know, um, depending on who you are. Um, you know, if you, if you can't go um, a mile, then there's no way you're going to go 20 some odd miles, right? Um, so we, we want to break these things down into manageable steps. And we need to understand what manageable is for our clients. Um, so it could be very simple. Like, you know, first, um, it might help to take two deep breaths, right? Again, we're doing the active listening example here. Second, it often helps to make eye contact. Third, it's good not to interrupt, um, then to check in um, to repeat what you heard and understood. Right. These might be three steps that, that might apply to somebody who's struggling with that. Um, and remember, all along the way, as you're teaching these skills, you want to do it in a non-judgmental way, right? Because the, the client um, needs to feel comfortable learning something new and they may feel, um, you know, the client might say something like, well, you know, my spouse interrupts also, and that may be true. Um, but you have to maneuver that in a way that, that sort of, you know, maintains that non-judgmental stance. Um, so if you're in a group, maybe you um, maybe you say something like, when we feel like someone is listening to us, what do we notice that the other person is doing, right? So you're kind of, again, putting it back out to the group um, to get sort of some ideas from all the other folks. Uh, as many of you know, sometimes there's a lot of power in having um, people that clients perceive as colleagues rather than their therapist to generate some of those ideas. And their buy-in might actually increase if they hear it from someone else other than us. Um, so break it down into steps. If your client is visual, if they need, um, if it helps them to process the steps, um, don't be afraid of writing it down. Create a handout, create something that's just very clear, um, especially if it's a very like abstract skill. Um, Jen was mentioning earlier there are like thinking skills, right? If I if I ask for help, I got to think about who I have to ask help for uh, from, um, and then there are the parts you actually do. So that can be a lot to manage, right? And also don't assume that because it's obvious to you that the client thinks it's obvious, right? Like you may rush through these steps and be like, yeah, pretty easy, when it's actually not necessarily pretty easy. Right. Um, then we move on to step three, which is demonstrate. And here we're modeling the skill for our clients. Um, so you are in an individual session with the client and you might say something like, I would like you just to observe me for the next couple of minutes. I'm going to start by taking two breaths 
And now here's what I look like when I'm making eye contact. And then you make eye contact. Um, notice how I'm reflecting back to you what I hear you saying without interrupting, right? Um, so again, you might have set this up a little bit more where you're like, let's have a conversation about what, you, what we did this weekend, right? And then you're modeling active listening while, while that's happening. Um, if you're in a group, you might sort of say, let's get two volunteers to model active listening for us. So one of the group members is working on, you know, this active listening thing. And maybe you, you get some other people to kind of model it for you. You know, let's observe the steps that they're doing together and then talk about it afterwards, right? Um, it may not always be necessary to demonstrate. I mean, sometimes you can, um, you can do it together. And that's the, you know, the, the demonstration. Um, a lot of times people don't necessarily just need to see it first, but a lot of times people do. So it can be less scary if you, especially if it's a skill that's like brand new to somebody to, to just have that person visually watch you do it. Um, but this, this brings back up that earlier point about feeling at least competent <laughs> in your ability to do the skill. So if I'm going to cook something, I, I at least need to know generally how to turn on the stove and to do the, the steps, whether or not it comes out perfectly, as Jen was saying earlier, you know, it, make mistakes together. That's okay too. That's part of the process. And that also humanizes you and that builds alliance, right? So you don't have to be perfect, but you do want the client to walk away feeling like, well, now I know how to do something better than I did before, <laughs> or at least be working towards that. Um, Jen, I don't know if there's anything so far you want to add to the steps two and three there. Okay. That's great. All right. Um, so step four is role play. By the way, if the word role play kind of grates you a little bit, or if you have clients that um, have very strong reactions to when you say role play, like, oh, hell no, I'm not doing role play. Or if you have that own reaction, um, you can call it something else. Th these are sort of arbitrary terms. Um, I mean, it's, it's basically just practice, although the sixth step is called practice. Um, but it's, it's rehearsal, it's rehearsal with you, whatever you want to call it. Um, so you can see sort of here it says, now let's practice how you might use active listening with your partner. I'll pretend to be your partner and you try to use the skills discussed, right? So once you've, you've demonstrated um, what the skill is and you've gone over those steps, um, you, you want to actually have them try it out with you, right? Um, in a group setting, you might say something like, let's get a volunteer role play John's partner for the next couple of minutes um, and have John practice the skills, right? Um, so a lot of different kind of creative ways you can do this. Um, and also depending on the spaces that you're in, you know, might be more conducive to doing different skills. Um, so, you know, use your judgment with that and, and also be thinking about what is comfortable for the client. Um, so there may be spaces that your client gets incredibly uncomfortable in, and, and it, let's say that they're doing sort of a, um, you know, a, a skill that would help them with being in public, like on the bus. Um, you know, you, you can do degrees of practice. You might practice in your office if you have an office. Maybe you don't have an office. You're out in the community. You're in their home. Um, but they're like, I don't really I feel comfortable practicing in my home. Can we step outside? Right. So, I mean, be flexible about um, what sorts of environments are going to be most conducive to the client practicing and and being OK, making mistakes and fumbling with you because they will. Right. Then feedback. Right, so you've practiced it and you wanna elicit and provide some feedback to your client on the practice or on the role play. Um, so how did, how did that feel? How did the role play feel? How did that practice feel? How did it feel to do that? Um, what went well during the practice? Is there anything that you or I 
could have done better if you're doing a role play that involves you know active listening right so invite them to take some ownership of it and to also give you feedback if you have that kind of relationship with them but that can also sort of make it feel a little bit more comfortable um so be sure to be strengths-based here right you want to offer praise where praise is due but also offer kind of areas for improvement right that's that's part of learning um you don't want to cut people down right and be like you did that absolutely wrong hopefully that this is obvious to everybody but um you know somebody may be doing something utterly and completely problematically <laughs> and you still don't want to cut them down you you sort of want to you want to gently figure out how to help to adjust kind of what they're up to um in a group setting, what did the group notice that John did well in terms of listening skills? Any feedback for improvement? Um, again, if the group is such that there is that kind of relationship where they can take feedback, um, then, you know, great. But if not, then be mindful of that. Um, and then the sixth step is kind of the real life practice piece. Um, and I, I'd be curious to know how many folks actually do this part. So for those of you that, that said, um, you know, you do skills practice regularly, do you then encourage the client to practice outside in real life situations? Or um, people sometimes call this homework. Homework also has one of those sort of um, connotations that isn't always great to use. Um, you know, people associate it with school and it's like, oh God, an assignment where I could fail, right? So you want to use language that speaks to the client as always. But, um, you know, this could be a, a practice opportunity between now and the next session, you know, how could you use these listening skills that we practice today? Um, and it may be with the partner and it may be like going straight to the, I'm going to try it out with my partner, what we did. But the client might also say, um, I don't think I'm ready. I'm not ready to do this with my, with my partner. Um, so it might become with whom might you practice these skills again over the next week? Um, so, hmm, okay, I guess I could do it with my, um, with my good friend before doing it with my spouse, right? I guess I, I would feel more comfortable kind of trying it out again, right? Um, or no, you know, I, I need to do it again with you. I need to do it five more times with you. Um, that's okay, right? But, um, or it could be also sometimes people are not ready to do, but they can think, so they might imagine themselves between now and next week, I want you to kind of sit down and take 10 minutes and just go through the steps in your head, right? Like, like imaginal, um, well, first, I guess I would do, you know, I would take the two breaths, then I would, you know, look the person in the eye and then, you know, I would, I would listen and then reflect back, right? So, so there's, um, this gets back to the, the little steps, like practice steps. Did you feel more comfortable with steps one and two rather than three? Could you just do step one this week, right? So be willing to kind of break it down into even smaller pieces when thinking about follow-up practice. But this is really important, right? Because the whole point of, of um, making a change is that you sometimes have to um, integrate it into your real life and try it out. Um, there's probably a lot more to say about practice, but I, I think one of the things that hopefully is intuitive to a lot of us is um, you want to be very encouraging, very, very validating. Um, you want to... Um, we, we'll talk about this in, in uh, the follow-up trainings that are coming in the in the next few weeks, but there's something called um, no-loss experiments, <laughs> and you could think about no-loss practice, or no, sorry, no-lose practice, not loss, um, and you can think about practice as being helpful regardless of what happens, regardless of whether the person feels like it worked perfectly or it didn't, 
right? Um, you want the, the person to walk away feeling like there's something to be gained. Well, I learned something about myself in this process. I learned I need more practice or I need more skills or, oh my God, I was pretty good at the skill, but I'm up against quite a lot. <laughs> so maybe it's not just about me, right? I'm, I'm, inter I'm interfacing with a really challenging other person who makes it hard for me to actively listen, right? Um, so you, you want to you wanna kind of try to prepare for those kinds of things with practice. So, you know, you can kind of almost lower the lower the expectations a little bit when you're like, so I just want you to try to, you know, try doing one of these things between now and next week. When would you try it? When would you do it? Um, but, you know, don't try not to get too up in your head about like how it went. We'll talk about it next week. Um, again, you, you know your clients and how to sort of speak with them, but something to think about. Um, all right. Oh, and then with groups, would you be willing to check back in with the group next week, right? That, that might be a way to kind of create that sense of accountability that sometimes people need with practice, right? A lot of us are very well-intentioned, but this stuff is really hard and there's a reason why they haven't been doing it. So, um, you know, hey, would you be willing to check back in? And the person could say, no, I'm, I don't really want to do that. Okay, that's cool. You know, you want to respect that agency, um, but it's worth kind of using that if they have a good relationship. This next section, um, we're going to leave this slide up. And what we encourage you to do is either if you want to write it down on a sheet of paper or just keep track in your mind, whatever you want to do. As Michael and I roll through this stuff, just keep track of uh, each section, maybe if you can, just the goal setting, skill matching, and then each step as we go. Um, and then we can discuss after. So. Um, and and um, we're going to try to keep these relatively brief just so we can um, process a little afterwards and right. kind of talk a little bit. So I, I bring that up just to say that um, in real life, you know, you may spend a lot more time doing each of these things. You probably would spend more time kind of unpacking, um, you know, some of some of this stuff. Um, however, many of us don't have the luxury of a lot of time <laughs> in, in sort of the settings that we work in. So, um, you know, hopefully this is somewhat realistic in terms of the kind of thing that you could say or the kind of thing you could see. But um, this big caveat out there that um, this is just to kind of give you a flavor of how to how to integrate each of these mm -hmm. steps. Yeah, it'll be pretty basic too. So hopefully we'll be able to um, demonstrate each section really clearly. It'll, so it's pretty simple to start. We realize that they'll be much more nuanced or can be nuanced in, in um, your um, in your treatment agency. So, and, and do bring that up afterwards if you feel up to it, you know, um, if you're like, well, what if that, what if, you know, he said that instead, you know, that absolutely bring that up because people are complex and this work is complex. So, all right. So um, we're going to do, I think, two role plays. Um, and um, I guess we'll, we'll just get to it. I, I suppose we could say, should we say a little um, context about what's Yeah. Going? Yeah. Let's, just the setup, maybe, of yeah. it. So um, in this first one, um, I'm going to be sort of the provider or the helper. Um, and I'm working in a setting, um, let's say it's a community mental health type of a setting where um, it could be a rehab setting. It could be a, um, like an intensive outpatient program type of a setting um, where a client um, receives services in a group setting for part of the time and then sees me as an individual provider. Again, maybe I'm a, um, I'm a caseworker or I'm a therapist or um, a rehab counselor, whatever, whatever you want to call it. 
Um, and um, Jen, who will be the client, um, has just come out of group um, and is having a hard time. So we're going to do some skills about that. All right. Um, so here we go. Break. <laughs> um, hey, Jen. You, hey. How you doing? Not good. What's going on? What happened? I'm just really upset. I feel like I was attacked in group. Um, and I just don't, I don't want to go back there. And I'm feeling really restless and mm. angry. And I just don't, I'm, I'm worried that um, I might start cutting again. And just I'm feeling a really strong urge. Hmm. So um, sounds like something happened in, in group that, that really kind of um, set you off, had an impact on you. It, it led to you feeling pretty angry, feeling a lot of emotions right now. And it sounds like you're also having urges to, to cut, um, mm -hmm. to possibly deal with, with that strong emotion. Yeah. yeah. Um, if you had to just to give me a better sense of how strong both your, your anger is and the urge. We'll start just with the anger. Just um, zero to ten. If let's we'll start with anger. If ten was the most angry you've ever felt, um, and zero is none whatsoever, where would you put yourself right now? Probably an eight. Okay, so pretty pretty high um, anger. Gotcha. Same thing with your cutting urges. So so if if ten was like the strongest urge you've ever had in your life to cut, and zero was none whatsoever, where where are you at with that? I'm at like a seven, and I just. I don't want to do it because I've just been doing so well lately. I don't, I'm just feeling really frustrated. You know, I'm, I'm so glad that you brought that up. Um, you know, then you can give yourself that credit because I would agree with you. You've, you've been uh, such a rock star and trying to kind of stay away from that, you know, managing your, your anger in a way that, um, you know, maybe is a little healthier. Um, I know that's something that you've been working so hard on. So um, I'm glad you can recognize that. And um, so um what are you know what's worked in the past what's what's been helpful I don't know I just I mean I've been in treatment for a while and I just don't I just don't feel like I've been using anything regularly that has been helpful I've just kind of been hanging on yeah um sounds like you're in kind of a place where you're you're at at your wits end a little bit and, and you're digging real deep and there's not much down there to, to kind of hold on to um so you're you're feeling it yeah um well let me let me ask you this would would you be willing to think about a new strategy or a different strategy to try to deal with both the anger and the cutting i mean i guess sure whatever whatever is going to help okay All right so here's my thought and you can tell me what you think about this um and obviously tell me if you you feel okay trying this out um but I wonder, so I, I have a, I have a skill in mind. I have a strategy in mind that um, is called tip. Um, and it's a skill stands for tip the temperature, intense physical activity and paired muscle relaxation and breathing. Um, it's an acronym because <laughs> we love acronyms here. Um, and it often helps people to deal with really, really strong emotions. It helps them to kind of turn it down. So again, we may not be able to get your anger all the way down to a zero, right? It's at an eight right now, but um, maybe to the point where you feel a little bit less of the anger where you can tolerate it. And maybe also if those, if that anger goes down, maybe your urges might go down. Um, does that sound right? 
Yes. Maybe. <laughs> yes. Okay. Sure. Okay. So, um, why don't have you ever heard of anybody who's who's used this before? I haven't. Okay. So this would be brand new to you. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, well, so so that's what people usually describe the impact of this is when they when they try it in those moments when they're having really really strong emotions and they're having really strong behavioral urges to do something like cutting then they do this and it can kind of turn those urges down to the point where maybe you could even get back to group i don't know um i mean you have to do it what you feel comfortable with but but basically so you can get back to your day and not have it sort of interrupt everything um so can i tell you about the the steps what it is yep yeah. Okay. So step one, the T, which is tip the temperature. Um, what, what we would do there is we would grab a really cold ice pack. It doesn't have to be an ice pack. It could be an ice cube. It could be putting your face in a ice cold bucket of water. Um, it could be grabbing an orange from your freezer. It could be grabbing um, a frozen steak from your <laughs> freezer, um, some frozen peas, whatever, just something very cold. All right. And we're basically going to hold it on our faces, actually anywhere you want, but just somewhere it could be on your neck, on your face, on your ears and so forth. Um, we'll do that for like 30 seconds. And while we do that, um, if you want to take in a really deep breath and if you want to hold your breath for like 15 seconds, that's fine. Some people like to do it 30 seconds. Some people don't like to hold their breath, totally fine. But we're basically going to focus on that, right? Second step, the eye intense physical activity, we're going to get up and we're going to kind of get our heart rate up. A little bit. So we're going to do, we're going to do some exercise um, really quickly, just, just really intensely for about 30 seconds together. Okay. If you're willing to do it and you can tell me if, if it feels unco too uncomfortable. All right. Um, and then the third step is P and that's the paired muscle relaxation and breathing. Um, after we've gotten our heart rate up and we burned off our distress, um, we're going to kind of sit back down and we're going to kind of bring ourselves down a bit and we're going to do some guided breathing. Um, you can breathe any way you want. A suggestion though, and what I'll, I'll maybe try to do, um, and we can do this together, is we'll breathe in on a four count, and then we'll breathe out on a six count. Um, and that's really just to slow down our breath. But if you feel like that's uncomfortable, then we're just going to slow down our breathing, and you can breathe any way you want. Okay? How does that sound? Good. Okay. Um, would it help if I did it first? Or are you feeling like you want to just do it together? Uh, maybe if you did it first, that would be better. Okay. So um, I'll shorten all of this, but just to kind of give you a sense of it. All right. So I have an ice pack here <laughs> and um, I just, you know, have these lying around regularly. Um, so step one, when we do the tea, I would kind of put this on my face and I can do this with eyes open or closed. Right. And I can move this around and this is really, really, really cold. Um, and It feels incredibly cold. I could put it on the back of my hand. I could put it on my neck. I could maybe even put it on my arms or my legs if I wanted to. All right. So we would do that for 30 seconds. And then we would move on to T. And for this, here's what we're going to do. We're going to get up out of our chair, go up, arms out, and down. Up, arms out, down. Up, arms out, down. And I'm going to try to do this as quickly as I can. And the faster I do it, the more I'm going to get my heart rate up, right? So we'll do that for about, I don't know, 30 seconds, really intensely, all right? We might have to do it for longer, but we can always do it longer or shorter. 
Um, and then the last thing that we're going to do is we'll sit back down and you can do this with eyes open or closed, feet on the ground. And I'm going to take in some deep breaths. You can breathe in your nose, out your nose, in your nose, out your mouth. I'm doing in my nose, out my mouth. And I'm trying to do on a four count, so I breathe in, two, three, four, and then out, two, three, four, five, six, and then just repeat. Any questions about any parts of that so far? No. Okay. Do you want to try it together? Sure. Okay. You're a trooper. <laughs> Grab my ice pack. Yeah. Okay. All right. So let's do it. Um, so ready, set, go. So just put it anywhere that feels comfortable for you. And again, if you want to take in a breath and like hold your breath for 15 seconds, you certainly can do that. But otherwise, just put it wherever you want, just so that you notice the cold. That's the goal. What are you noticing so far? <laughs> if my, I don't know. I just, it's really cold. Yeah. And I guess I'm paying attention more to that than anything else. Okay. All right. All right. We can put it down now. All right. Let's do intense physical activity. All right. So ready, set, go up, arms up, arms out, and then back down. And you want to do this in a way that gets your, your heart rate up. If only we had some music, right? Um, now, keep doing that. You know, if you wanted to mix this up, if you didn't felt, if you felt out of breath, if you feel like you're going to pass out, then, you know, we don't want you to keep doing it. Um, we could like push up against a wall really, really hard as if we're like trying to move it, or we can lift our legs. I mean, anything that works for you. It doesn't have to be that. All right. So, all right, let's sit back down now. And let's just try to slow down our breathing at this point, okay? So you just eyes open or closed, feet flat on the ground. And just kind of breathe in, feel the air going in through your nose, your chest rising. And then out through your nose or your mouth, whatever you like. Maybe breathe in on a four count in two three four out two three four five six and then in two three four out two three four five six and again just take maybe one or two more rounds of that Really feel your belly rising as you breathe in and then just falling or contracting as you breathe out. Try to drop your shoulders as you do this. All right, so we'll pause there and let me just check in with you. Um, how did that feel to do that? 
Um, fine. Felt good. How would you say you feel in terms of your anger? Um, so I know when before we did this, um, you had rated your anger, I think, like a was like an eight, I think. Has that improved? Has it decreased? Yeah. Is it about the same still? But no, it's, it's come down. I'd say it would be about a five still. Okay. All right. So it's come down a bit. And then um, how about your urges to cut? How You said it was like a nine, I thought. Um, I hope I'm remembering correctly. It's come, it's come way down. I feel like it's at a two. Okay. Wow. So, so it, it went down quite a bit. Um, so does that seem like something that that you would be able to do later today? Cause you know, this is not your first time having, you know, this kind of a reaction, right? We've, you and I have been working together a bit on this. Um, is it something that, that you think you could do like later today if you got urges again? Yeah, I think it might be helpful. I mean, I have to go back to group. So at some point today, so I think that might be, it might be helpful to do before that. Okay. That's a great point. So, you know, if you needed to repeat this a few times in order to get back to the group, that's a, that's a great idea um, and a good, good place to practice. Yeah. All right. We'll pause there. <laughs> cool. <Yeah. laughs> um, how are the steps? <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thanks everyone. I don't know if you noticed, I had a tiny book. It's called The Pocket Pema Children. It's a meditation book, but it's actually pretty cold. Um, so, so how were people able to follow along with the steps pretty easily? Yeah. So it like you could see the goal setting part. You kind of build up to that, and then you match the skill, and you kind of start to explain it. That skill matching and rationale come like can kind of blend together. Um, yeah, and then the steps, Michael was awesome at just laying down exactly what the steps were. And this was a great example because it's a tip skill. So um, there are steps to the actual skill. Some skills are a little more abstract. Um, as you'll see with our next demonstration, it's just kind of a looser construct as far as steps. And then the demonstrate part. Yeah. This, this particular skill also um, maybe obviously was in the moment, right? This is like somebody who's having a set of symptoms and that can be a great opportunity to actually learn a skill if the client. Mm -hmm. Great. And your, and your client might just say, you know what, you don't need, let's just do it together. Like in that instance, they might just be like, let's just do it together. So you might just kind of skip the demonstrate part um, and go right into the role play. And you might practice more. You can practice as much as you want. Right. There's no there's no, um, you know, rules around that, around the practice part. This this, by the way, we were talking about back pocket skills the, um, in the clinical work that I used to do. Um, this was a situation that was actually pretty regular. And this was a, a go to skill that um, folks learned in the program. And um, again, that's not to say that that clients were always like, yeah, let's go straight to doing it in your office. But, but it, it, I still had to go through these steps of kind of reminding them of possible rationale um, and, you know, what are we about to do that we would do it together in my office and we would do it as many times as the client needed it. Um, we would also probably in, in the real world, you know, afterwards during the kind of the feedback, um, you know what, I didn't give you the feedback. Did I? I missed that. Can we catch that? 
So, so during feed, so first of all, um, you know, we did sort of the, um, well, I, I asked you kind of how it, how it went, but yeah. I, I didn't, yeah. I didn't sort of say like really nice job or, or like I, you know, I saw this going on while we were practicing, which, which would have been a good thing to do. But during, during kind of that feedback and practice part, you know, more often than not, we would probably talk about ways to adapt it to. So the client wouldn't feel like amazing necessarily. Like it, it, it's not like a silver bullet, but, um, the client might say, well, you know, I didn't really like that second part so much. Like it made me feel really like lightheaded. So we would talk about, well, what would you do instead? Right. So you want to be very flexible. Yep. Um, we have a question here. Can you repeat what TIP stands for? Oh, sure. So TIP is um, TIP the temperature, intense physical activity and paired um, breathing and muscle relaxation. We didn't really do the muscle relaxation part. It's out of, um, it's a DBT skill for those of you that are um, familiar, dialectical behavior therapy. It's one of the distress tolerance skills um, and really good for um, in the moment, really strong emotions or behavioral urges. There are, there's a lot of online um, handouts and versions of it. If you just um, Google tip DBT, you'll find tons of them. Mm -hmm. Before we get, we're just going to, so that was a, um, that was a good example of a coping skill, right? And so our next skill is going to be a social skill. So we'll demonstrate what that looks like. Keep an eye on those steps. See if I miss anything. So I think in this situation, we're going to do a social skill and we're going to focus in on um, the setup is a person. It's a man who's having issues asking for help at work. He's encountered some problems there and he's in a treatment setting. Um, and I'm going to help him through what it might look like to ask for help. Now, this one is a little more obscure, like asking for help. There can be loads of steps in there, like and it's probably different for everybody. Um, but um, just keep track of the steps as we roll through this next role play and then we'll open them, um, excuse me, open up some space for Q&A and we've got a list too of some um, questions that people typically ask about behavior rehearsal too. Ready? Yeah. All right. Hey, Michael, how are you doing today? Hey, Jen. Um, not the best. I... Um... It was a, it was kind of a rough work week. I, uh, you know, how I'm kind of new to my job mm -hmm. uh, and you know how I, I operate, I'm a forklift operator, but pretty new to it. You know, I'm, I'm kind of new to the, new to the job. Um, I just did my training like, I don't know, a month ago or something like that. And, um, you know, they gave me an assignment. I'm, I'm in the warehouse. I'm, you know, driving the forklift and, um, you know, I'm going over to this really, really big uh, piece of cargo and, you know, I, I get into the, the forklift and I'm driving along and I don't know what happened. Um, I must have like zoned out or something. I, I, I don't have any idea what happened. I, I drive right into the cargo and then the teeth of the forklift go right into the box and two giant holes and I damaged, I don't even know what was in there. I don't even want to think about it. Um, they'll probably take it out of my paycheck or something. I don't know. And um, I just, I destroyed the the cargo. And so I'm, I don't know, I'm, I'm pretty pissed at myself for it and just feeling ashamed and, you know, feeling really down. So. Yeah. Yeah. 
yeah, it sounds like it was a pretty stressful situation. I hope you're okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as, as okay as I can be, you know, with, um, messing up like that, but Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, what do you feel like would be helpful for you at work in this situation? Is there any way you could get some extra training or, um, anything that you might think would help in the situation? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I feel kind of like I was thrown right into a situation that I wasn't super ready for. I mean, I don't want to like blame other people cause I messed it up, but you know, I'm pretty new to this and um, I don't know. I mean, having a little bit more like guidance would be great, but, but I can't, I can't ask people there for the guidance. Like I, I can't ask them for help. Like it's, you know, it, I just can't ask them for help, you know? Yeah. It can be really hard to ask for help, for sure. Do you um, typically have a difficult time asking for help? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah, I, I guess if I if I ask for help, you know, it'll I don't know. I'm, it makes me weak. Right. Like it, it, it's people, you know, people who are who are strong don't need help. Right. And. Um, I mean, I, I don't know, maybe that's not true, but that's how I think about the world. That's mm-hmm. how I was raised that, you know, you don't, you don't ask for help or if you do, then you're weak. And, um, on top of that, you know, it's, it's a bunch of guys at work. And, you know, if I, if I go up to one of them and I'm like, you know, I, I need help doing my job, what are they going to say to me? You know? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it sounds like you're in a situation where you're really used to working independently and, asking for help is not something that you're comfortable with. Um, And at the same time, it might be, um, you know, it might be really helpful to be able to ask for help. Has there ever been a time in your life where you've asked for help? Um, Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there is, I guess. I was at, um, I was at the store the other day and I, I was looking for something on one of the aisles and, uh, you know, I, I couldn't find it. And I, I was just so frustrated. So I finally just saw somebody. I was like, can you tell me where this is? And mm-hmm. so they pointed it out, you know, it was fine. It wasn't the end of the world. And and I got, I got what I needed. You know, I, I was able to, to get the thing that I was there to buy. Um, so I guess it went fine. Right. Okay, good. So how do you think that might translate with your work? Um, how do you think asking for help might help you at work? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, if, if I, if I was able to do it, if I was comfortable doing it, um, I suppose just like when I was in the, when I was in the store looking for what I needed, cause I couldn't find it. I suppose if I could get some help at work, maybe a little bit more, I don't know, guidance or training from some of the guys that have been doing it for longer. Maybe I could, I could observe them a little bit more. Maybe I could get, you know, some, some, I could feel more comfortable with what I was doing and maybe make, make less errors, I suppose. And mm-hmm. hopefully not fired. That that would be nice. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so asking for help at work on a base level might just help you um, do just a better job in general. Yeah, that sounds right. Would you be willing to practice asking for help here with me? Sure. Yeah, let's let's try it. <laughs>
Okay. All right. So, so first we might think of what the steps might be when we ask for help. Um, so we might um, first identify what we actually need help with, right? So when you're at the grocery store, you were like, oh, you know what? I need to find this item and I can't figure it out. I need to ask for whatever it was you're trying to find. So identifying what you need, that might be the first step, right? And we can write this out as we go. So it might be easy to follow. And then maybe the next step could be, who do I ask for help? Like, so figuring out who you're gonna even ask for help is important, right? Am I gonna ask the cashier or am I gonna ask someone who looks like an employee that's walking down the aisles at the store? Or in, in the case at work, would you be asking a coworker of yours or might you ask your supervisor for help instead, right? Um, and then the next step might be how to even ask for help. What, what might that sound like, right? Um, and then, you know, a good way of preparing to ask for help might be just taking a deep breath, like, <gasps> okay, I'm about to ask for help. So taking a deep breath might be helpful there too. And then, and then you're going to go up and we're going to ask the person for help. So that might be the next step. We're going to ask the person for help. Um, and then we'll receive the help, right? So you'll be actually able to receive the help. And then the last step might be just to say thank you. Yeah? Is there anything that I missed in there or anything you might add? You know what you're doing. I don't know how to do this. So. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, we can figure it out as we go. Like if you start, if we start moving through this and you feel like, oh, that didn't feel right. Like we can change it and, every, and, and just um, make sure to um, change it to where you feel comfortable. That's the most important part as you know, the things that where you feel most comfortable is, um, is the key here. Yeah, you know, I, oh. I, I doubt I'll feel comfortable with any of it, but I guess I still got to try to do it, right? Okay, yeah, yeah. And that, it takes courage. When you're not used to asking for help, it, it takes courage to get there. And we could even start small. It doesn't necessarily have to happen at work. First off, you could practice more at the grocery store or wherever you might think would be helpful to ask for help first before you get to work too. Um, so how about I, how, would you like me to demonstrate those steps for you first? Or do you want to just roll? Okay, got it. All right. So I'm going to walk through the steps of what it might be like to ask for help. Would you want to be um, the person that's helping you? Or do you want me to just kind of walk through it, what it might look like? Um, you can you can just walk through it. That's okay. Okay, got yeah. it. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to think out loud here. <clears throat> hmm. Gosh, I'm having a really difficult time backing up my forklift. Don't really want to make another mistake. Well, who could I ask for help? When I'm thinking about someone who might be able to help me, I think about my friend, Jeff at work. He's really a helpful guy. Um, I think, and he's really good at what he does. So he might really be able to help me. Um, hmm, how might I ask? Well, I could ask him just right, out, right off the bat. I could just say, hey, can you help me with my forklift? Or I could ask him for a time that he might be willing to help, right? Um, good. I'll just ask him if he has some time to be able to help me. And I'm going to take a deep breath. And it looks like Jeff's ready. Um, and he's taking a break. We're in the break room. I'm going to ask him for help. Hey, Jeff, how you doing? Good. I was wondering if you'd be able to help me 
with my forklift when you're done with your shift. Is that okay? Would you be able to help me? Awesome. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you so much. What time are you thinking? Two o'clock. Great. Thank you so much for your help. Okay, so that that may be what it kind of sounds like in your head and what it might, it might look like in the actual situation. So how did that feel to you? Was that super cheesy or did it feel okay? No, I, I mean, I, I think it makes sense. I, I think I would just want to make sure that like I approached him when nobody else was around. I don't think I would feel comfortable. Maybe Like if there were other people in the break room, I probably would, would be like, oh, heck no, you know. Um, yeah. But um you know, I, I think it would be hard for me to like admit the mistake out loud, but I guess that's what I gotta, I gotta practice. Um, you know, so that, that's just part of, I guess, getting more comfortable with it. Um, but yeah, it, it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Good. And that's a really good thing to think about. Um, if you're just thinking about the situation at hand, what things in your environment might help you feel a little bit more comfortable asking for help. And if that just so happens to be no one else around other than the person you're asking, that's really important to keep in mind when you think about what you're willing to do when you go to ask someone for help. And admitting your mistake might not even be a part of the process either, right? Good. So, so, um, so are you ready to maybe kind of try it out with me? Sure. So um, you could be you and I could be the person that's helping you at work. Okay. Sound good? Yeah. 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 All right. Okay. So um, I got to figure out who I'm going to ask um, and, you know, maybe when to go ask them. So um, I could go ask Jeff um, and I, you know, I, I might want to try to um, catch him maybe on his way out to the car Um you know, maybe just because we're we'll be out in kind of the parking lot when no one else is around, so I might do that. So I guess what I would say to him is, hey, you know, I um, I'm having a hard time um, with, you know, I, I could just use a little bit of help with with getting a little bit of more experience with the forklift. Could I could I maybe ride with you whenever you have your next thing? So absolutely, uh, absolutely. Uh, hey Jeff. <laughs> hey, oh, Jeff. sorry. Um, <laughs> it's okay. Um, hey Jeff, I, I, how was your day? How, how's your day? It's all right. I'm ready to go home. Yeah, me too. Me too. Um, hey, you know, listen, I, I hope I'm not a bother. I hope I'm not, um, I hope I'm not, you know, putting you out too much, but, um, I, given that I'm, I'm kind of new to this whole thing, I, I would love to get a little bit more experience and I, I, you seem to do your job really, really well. Um, I wondered if, if I could maybe observe you with the, in on your next forklift shift. Um, Cause I'm, you know, I, I just, I feel like I, I'd like to have a little bit more experience. Yeah, that'd be awesome. I'd love to help you. Um, I'm free tomorrow at two. You, you sure, you sure that's not a problem. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry if it is. I'm sorry. Not at all. I'd love to help. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate that. All right. I'll see you tomorrow. Then. Great. Thanks. So you did a really good job. Um, asking for help. You did an awesome job. How'd that feel for you? Um, it, better than I thought. Uh, you know, it, again, I, I doubt I'll feel, you know, I, I felt, I felt some tension up here, yeah. <laughs> uh, even though you're, you're not even Jeff, but, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'll probably feel like I got to apologize like 3000 times, you know, because oh. I'll, I'll feel like I'm putting them out or something, but, um, I guess better to apologize and ask for help than not at all, I guess. 
Yeah. You did a really good job um, in the way you asked for help, um, and you were very specific in the way you asked for it. So um, maybe a suggestion next time would be to remember to take a deep breath and kind of let your shoulders relax oh, yeah, before forgot. you go up and ask them. Yeah, 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 that can be really helpful, too. Um, do you think that this is something that you would feel comfortable with using moving forward? Yeah, I think so. I think I could do that. Good. Yeah, awesome. Great. Okay, time out. All right, <laughs> We're, we got three minutes. <laughs> We're done acting. Oh my gosh, so three minutes left. Yeah. So um, I hope you're all able to follow along with the different steps that we had for that role play and we're able to demonstrate um, a good social skill. Again, social skills can be a little murky. They're not clear um, steps that you lay on. It's something that you can collaboratively work on with your clients. Um, anything coming up for any of you that you wanna discuss before we leave. Well, we do have some FAQs here. Um, there's some common questions that come up when using behavioral rehearsal uh, with your clients and with the people that you serve. Um, some things like, what if awkward, what if I'm awkward? What if I feel awkward? That's okay. It's okay. Like, it, it will move through that and that awkwardness. It's nice, again, to be able to demonstrate for our clients what that actually looks like. You can even say it out loud. I'm nervous. Like, this is new to me, too. Um, um, let's see, if your client does not want to learn skills, we've um, talked a little bit about that. If they're not in a stage of change where they're not ready to work on a skill, don't do it. Um, you know, work on engaging with them, work on getting to know them a little bit better. Um, some other things that come up on this FAQ uh, page will have, right, Michael, we have these um, answers to the yeah. questions in the slides. So you yes. all be able to access those slides and take a look at the answers to the questions um, moving forward. One, one thing we have this point is skills training culturally appropriate. Um, that's obviously a really important one too when we think about is it is it trauma informed? Is it culturally appropriate? These are all things that a lot of us are thinking about now. And the answer, the short answer is yes. Um, but you know, definitely just something to keep on your radar when you're doing skills training. Some of those dynamics that might come up. You know, if if I am from a culture where um, let's say that I, I'm a male identifying person and my client, or let's say that I, I am I am the client and I'm I'm a man and my my provider is a woman and I come from a culture where you know there is a certain gender dynamic, then I need to be aware of that sort of thing. Like, is it okay for a woman to teach a man in my culture certain things? Um, that would just be one example of a type of a dynamic that might come up. Mm -hmm. um, issues of race, issues of of all of the different lenses. So be aware of, of um, that as well. Yeah. Awesome. Well, it is um, time for us to go. We just want to say thank you so much for being engaged and um, attending today. We're really grateful that uh, for your attendance and hope you'll be able to use some behavior rehearsal moving forward in your work with people. Thanks for being here, everybody. Okay.